<clears throat> Who's your favorite villain in the movies? The movie industry certainly has brought to life on the big screen with, a, with almost fascination for the evil forces and the good forces, the bad and the good. And maybe that's because, well, it entertains us. Sometimes it scares us. Sometimes it makes us laugh. Sometimes we might just dismiss it. But it's there because probably, obviously by the box office returns, there's a curiosity that we have about the unseen world or about the dark side. But as the lights of the theater come on, and the scare is gone, or whatever feeling we felt, we might tend to dismiss the dark side. We might tend to think, well, that was just make-believe, and so there really isn't a dark side, and we don't have to worry about the invisible. We don't have to worry about that which we don't see. And so we might dismiss it, or we might trivialize it. Now, that only happens until we go back to the theater and the sequel comes up. And somehow the villain is raised from the dead and his mutant progeny inherit the earth eating and torturing human beings. But then again, as the lights come on and we go back to the light of our real life, we think, well, nothing to think about there, really. But... Is there a connection between that and that which is real? There is a connection between fantasy and reality. The reality is there is an unseen world. And it is the cosmic arena in which the spiritual battles for men and women's souls are fought. And that's very real. Those battles are between the forces of God for good... And the forces of the devil for evil. No wonder Paul said, as you see on your screen, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What does this have to do with our Alien Life series from 1 Peter? Well, we've been talking, and Peter's been talking, the author's been talking, about what alien life really means in the world that so far he's talked about is what we see and how we are to be different. Aliens, sojourners, foreigners, whatever words are used there to say, you don't belong here. This world is not your home. Christians are aliens. And because that's true and because that that world is a threat to us, Peter has used some 75 imperatives, statements of commands to Christians. Things like arm yourselves, be clear-minded, love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, honor the king, be self-controlled and alert. He's given a lot of those, and those are rather somber warnings to the Christians to whom he's speaking, and to us. And the reason he does that is because 
they are a real threat to them. But, but with, the, with the warnings and with the ominous part of the text, we have Peter giving reasons why we should do that, those things, why we should obey those commands, why we should resist that which is coming our way and remain aliens and not become a part of that world. And in doing that, he also gives us motivations for choosing to stand firm. Why so many imperatives? Why so much motivation? Why so urgent? Because there is an invisible, real dark side. There is a dark side villain who is not a figment of the filmmaker's fantasy, but is very real and is indeed a present danger. I find it interesting and instructive and maybe reaching a crescendo that Peter has saved this invisible world emphasis until the end of the book. He's talked about the visible world, but now he's going to get to a text that talks about that invisible world. And that's why we've called this particular lesson Alien Life in the Devil's World. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll begin in verse 5, the middle of it, and read through about verse 11. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered for a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Peter waits till this point in time to give us in verse 8 where we're really headed today. But before we get to verse 8 for just a second, notice some more imperatives in this text. In in verse 6 and verse 7, he says, humble yourselves. He says, cast all your anxieties on him. And then he gets to verse 9 and he says, resist, stand firm. More imperatives. But there it is right there in the middle. Verse 8, where Peter seems to agree with what Paul said in Ephesians 6. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for whom he may devour, or looking for someone to devour, depending on the translation. A lion. We know who that is. He tells us who that is. The lion imagery here may be a veiled allusion to Nero, who was known to somewhat as a lion. And the Roman Empire, lion imagery was connected with that too. And and we would see those as the visible lions in the Roman world in which those people lived. So, So Peter may be referring to that, or he may be using imagery that's not necessarily connected to that. I know this, that the lions in the invisible world, you see them? 
No. The lions are invisible in the devil's world. Now, we may see the visible manifestation of those lions in Nero or an antagonistic government of some kind or, or maybe even some enemy in the flesh. It might be a neighbor. It might be, a, it might be somebody that's close to us. It might be an overbearing boss. Of some, it might be some situation that the devil is using. That's the invisible lions that we face. But it is the devil himself. And he is not invisible when we bring him to light in Scripture, which is what we need to do. We've got to heighten our awareness of where the great battle is fought. The greater battle is fought in the heavenly realms, in the invisible world. And we also need to, once having looked at that a little bit today in the text, come to where God wants us to come eventually to turn back to him. He who is stronger, he who is greater than that awesome, daunting devil himself. So that we will be motivated to run to him for that protection and that provision from such an enemy. So if our battle is against the devil and his angels in an invisible world, we need the Bible to tell us. Give us something. Tell us about who he is. Describe him for us so that we will be alert. We'll be self-controlled. Because he has been, and he still is, and he always will be until this earth ends or until your life ends, one who is the adversary of humanity. He is bent on burning this world up, as it were. Destruction. So that you will go to the same den of darkness of eternity where he will go. So before we look at some of the specifics of 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, let's join some of that with some of the other texts of Scripture, other descriptions, very briefly, from other texts. He's introduced to us in Genesis chapter 3, isn't he? He's a serpent. That's a bit foreboding, isn't it? Should we not immediately realize he is sly? He is slippery. He is deceitful. But he is also dangerous. He's called Satan 50 or 60 times in Scripture. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen for one. Again, he is a deceiver. But he is more than that. He is an adversary. That's what the word Satan means. He is not a friend. Don't ever think he is your friend, though he might like you to believe so. Sometimes, and it's not on the, on the screen, but he's called an angel of light. Preaching team talked about this some time ago. He's an angel of light because, once again, he's a deceiver, and he's sometimes embodied in human form, saying things that sound right, by teachers of people who are influential, some people that we might respect to be telling us the truth, but he's not telling the truth. Because you see, he's a liar. John 8, 44. NIV says that lying is his native language. He can't tell a truth. If he gave you a half-truth, it's not a truth at all. It's a double lie. We should never forget that. He's a liar. He cannot tell you truth. He has no desire to tell you truth. He is a dragon. Those of us who are old enough to remember folk music lore, this is not Puff the Magic Dragon. 
This is T-Rex in Jurassic Park. You know, I, I thought maybe I should show some symbolism of these. And then I thought, no. No. Your imagination into the invisible world maybe needs to take you where these describe something foreboding and bad. But he is a dragon, Revelation 12 and 13. He is ferocious and he is to be feared. He is a murderer, John 8, 44. He is on the earth to kill you and me, the souls of all, so that they again can be with him. It's personal. Did you catch it, 1 Peter 5, verse 8? He's your enemy. Your enemy. Personally with him. He is called the devil. Used some 34 times in scripture at least. It means slanderer or accuser. Revelation 12 says he is in the presence of God day and night accusing brethren. What's he saying about you? What's he trying to get God to let him do to you as he did to Job? And those last three on the screen, put those together for just a minute. Prince of this world, God of this age, ruler of the kingdom of the air. That's why I said we're aliens in the devil's world. He is allowed certain privileges. He would consider them privileges. He is allowed certain powers by God. You know, you kind of like to think back to the book of Job where the Lord draws back the curtain in heaven for us to see. And the Lord says, where have you been? I've been going throughout the earth to and fro. What have you been doing? You've been looking. He's been looking for people. And the Lord allows him to do incredibly destructive Killing, murdering things to eventually try to destroy Job himself. But now let's go quickly to 1 Peter chapter 5 itself. And zero in on verse 8 because in this text, he's going to use four words. And these words are going to describe that lion that we referred to a little earlier. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8, he says, he is a prowling lion. He's roaming throughout the earth. Again, reminding us of the story of Job. Where you been? Well, I've been prowling through the earth. Saw Job. He's still prowling. Has he mentioned your name before the Father? I suspect so. I don't know why not. He's looking for prey. He's looking for meat. It's all around. He's looking for you. He is a roaring lion. He's scary. I, I don't remember how many times I've heard a lion roar in a zoo, but I do remember one of them. We had our children at the Auckland, New Zealand Zoo. It's a good zoo. And we were not on the same side of the zoo with the lions, but we heard them roar. That sent a chill down my spine. I think that's what the Lord intended. Maybe it's because my children were there and I thought, oh, is the lion on the loose? This lion is roaring. He's roaring because he's hungry. He's roaring because you are there for the taking. He has a voracious appetite for human souls. 
He is a seeking lion. He's seeking you. And he's seeking me. He's on the hunt. There is no rest with him. There is no sleep. There is no vacation. There is only pursuit before he ends up losing his battle. He is a devouring lion. This word in in the Greek language means he gulps down, which is really not the way a lion eats his prey. That's That's the essence of the word. He gulps it down like a drink of water. He gulps down one believer, and then he's still hungry and seeking another that he might just swallow. Seeking you to devour. The unmistakable picture of Satan or the devil here in Scripture is one who is God's and our enemy. There's no mistake about it. He is bent on destroying you and your life here on earth so that you will spend eternity with him. He is determined to use any and all of the methods and powers that God allows to bring about that goal. Let's make no mistake about it. He is very real and not to be summarily dismissed or humorized. Make no mistake about it. He is more powerful than you or me. We are not to hang out with him thinking, oh well, I can enjoy his offered pleasures and go my way anytime I want to unscathed. Won't happen. If that puts a little fear in you, that was intended. I think Peter intended it. I think Scripture intends it. It is an invisible world which might make us not think about that enough. Or maybe our climate or culture or the way we talk, think about God, we don't want to think about that. Or some maybe have even dismissed that as, well, God, God wouldn't let that really happen. That, I don't know where that came from, but that's not real. It's very real. And we are aliens living in his world. And if we don't see that, we could easily lose perspective of the real invisible world. So, scared by the devil and his power in this world? Yeah! Wonder if he's too strong for me to win against him? Yes! We are to be sobered, not dismissive, not forgetting. But we're not to abide in that fear, and Peter doesn't let us abide in that fear. No, rather, as we choose to resist him, we also choose to rely on the one who is more powerful than he is. We're not alone in our fight. Because those who are with us are more than those who are with him. You may recognize that. Elisha's servant in the Old Testament had to learn that truth in a demonstrative way. In 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 15 through 17, Samaria, the city, was surrounded by a a huge army of the Syrians. It will destroy the city and kill everybody or take them into captivity. So Elisha's servant thinks, and and he says to Elisha, what what are we going to do? And Elisha takes him out of the city and says to the Lord, let him see something that's invisible, but let him see it with his eyes. 
And he looked, and in the mountains were horses and chariots of fire, which will vanquish that whole army that night and the next day. On that occasion, he got to see that which was invisible, that which was more than are with them. And I think our text implies and says those kind of things to us. In verses 6 and 7, you see the Lord has already said, Peter has already said, He'll lift you up in due time. He cares for you. And then to the verse we're going to concentrate on for just a few minutes. He is the God of all grace, verse 10. He is willing. He is willing to do that which is needed in yours and my life to help us win. So that we don't lose and go where the devil wants us to. He is the God of all grace who called us to eternal glory in Christ Jesus. That's his intention for us. That's his goal for us. Do we think he would leave us defenseless? Do we think he would leave us powerless? Do you think he would leave us to ourselves to fail? To reach his eternally intended goal? Peter uses four strong statements in this passage. And, and they're all future tense, actually, in the Greek. And they're emphatic in that, in that regard. He will restore us. He will establish us. He will strengthen us. He will stabilize us. Now, different translations use different words here. And so, I did the best I can to look at the original language. And here's, here's what I came up with. The Lord, it says, God himself will restore us. Got to stop for just a second on himself. That's emphatic in the Greek. It doesn't just say, well, God will restore us. That'd be good. But, but to make sure you and I understand, God's taking a personal thing here. God himself, God himself will restore us. This word is used elsewhere in writings to talk about mending torn fishnets or taking care of broken bones. And surely as Satan comes against us, and surely as he has beaten on us and wounded us, God is more powerful to come back and to mend our cuts and bruises and to shore us up so that we are not vulnerable and weak so that we can go on for a little while. He himself will do that. He will establish us. The word has the connotation of supporting that which is teeter-tottering in the wind. I think of the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Or maybe a weatherman who can't stand up against the hurricane force winds. Satan knocks us for a loop to and fro. We're blowing in the withering winds that are too strong for us. But he steadies us. He steadies us. He rights us so that we can stand. And so that we can go on for a little while. He himself will strengthen us. When the devil is delivering his significant blows, when we are in the ring with him and he is too strong for us, and our strength is waning, God imparts sufficient strength to resist, enabling us to stand and to go back into the ring for a few more rounds. 
himself. He will stabilize us. The word had to do with cracking foundations. That which is falling away from underneath us. God stabilizes us. He puts us on solid ground until he decides to come get us. Is he strong enough to defeat the devil and do all this? Peter has to say, to him be the power forever and ever. And the whole church along with Peter said, that's right. Peter, how am I supposed to respond? I mean, my world is not exactly like the first century. Although perhaps the brethren in the Ukraine are right now. And other places in the world. But we have stressful, perilous times in our lives at times too. And we have the devil coming up against us at times too. In due season. But Peter... What do you want to close by saying? Look at verse 12. He says, With the help of Silas, I have written to you, uh, whom I consider as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly and testified that this is the true grace of God. And here it is. Stand fast in it. My grace, my power, my favor, my looking out for you, is strong enough. Now I need you to stand fast. I need you to hold on. Because even though you are aliens in the devil's world, after you have suffered for a little while, in due time, I will take you to the eternal glory that I intend for you to be in if you will stand fast. I love the last two songs that Josh has chosen for us. They are the same, aren't they, Josh? It's the first service? Okay. Huh? Same ones. Okay. And I didn't pick these. He did. The Lord will find a way for me. That reminds me of vacation Bible school when I was little. Palmer Wheeler. Some of you may remember him from way, way back. He came to do our VBS and... He inspired me. I was a child that perhaps had some fears, some insecurities. And we would sing this song. The Lord will find a way for you. The implication is, need you to stand fast, young man. And then we'll close with, the battle belongs to the Lord. If we will stand fast with him. Are you ready to make that first move to become a Christian? You will not win without him. You will not be saved without him. You will be hurt and you will fall without him. It's time to come to the one who's ready to save you and empower you. And in due time, will take you to eternal glory too. And for those of us who are Christians, if we're bending in the winds or if the foundation is cracking, may you be encouraged. To make that decision today. We have to make it every day. To stand fast. And he will be with you. While we stand and sing.